I want to look at the Parsha and examine one of the Musser lessons, one of the Midos that really is on display. It's actually one of the, I think, probably the theme of the Parsha. And learn the story, pull some insights, but also try to develop a cogent understanding of what I would say is sort of a subtle nuance in a certain meat, a certain characteristic, and I think one that is not discussed often enough. I think there's a certain characteristic which is so fundamental to human relationships. It's so critical. It's, it really permeates every aspect of life, of interpersonal social life. And I think that if we really take the lesson that we find in the Suits Parsha and all the supporting sources, I think we could really vastly improve the relationships we have with other people and by extension, the relationship we have with God. Now, the topic we want to talk about is, in Hebrew, there's an easy word for it. In English, there's a lot of really good words for it. And that is, in Hebrew, it's called machlokas. And in English, it means it means strife, it means discord, it means division, it means disunity, it means schisms, it means sectarianism, it's factionalism, it's infighting. And this parsha is always presented as the parsha where we learn the lessons about how to have a fight, how to have an argument, and how not to have a fight, how not to have an argument. It's only natural that, you know, we know every all people are different and they think differently and they have, of course, disagreements. And you have that in a family and you have it in a marriage and you have it in a business relationship, you have it in organizations, and that's, that's fixed. In this parasha, we learn how it's done. What's the proper way to have a fight, have a disagreement, have an argument, and not allow it to devolve into what happened in this week's parasha. So what I want to do is I want to look at the story, read the story, pull some insights, and then retell the story in a lens, the way uh, the Talmud does, the Mishnah does, and hopefully draw some really powerful lessons in our life regarding interpersonal uh, relationships and also learning, you know, the, the, the positive aspect, how, how you could grow in an argument or, unfortunately, how it could really devolve. So the name of the parsha is Korach, and Korach is the antagonist of the story, and he is Moshe's first cousin. Their fathers are brothers. Korach's father is Yitzhar. Moshe's father is Amram. They are both the sons of Kehas. And he begins a rebellion and insurrection against Moshe, against Aaron, and essentially against God. And the whole, essentially the bulk of the parsha is telling the story of the rebellion. What was the give and take, the back and forth? They had a showdown, uh, and Korach and his followers and his cohorts and his co-conspirators died in a really horrific way. And then there was further recriminations, there was further proofs that Moshe was indeed sent by God, and the Parsha ends with other laws about the laws of a Kohen, but that's the bulk of the Parsha. And right away from the beginning, Rashi kind of opens up the discussion by presenting to us the internals of what drove Korach to go and mount a rebellion against Moshe and by extension against God. It actually tells us that there was nominations. And we know, we've seen this throughout the book of of Numbers, that there was heads of tribes, and there were various leaders of tribes, and various heads of families. 
And the family of Kehas, which is the family of one of the three sons of Levi, they had to have a leader. And Moshe went to God and said, what's the leader of the family of Kehas? And and God told Moshe, the the leader is going to be Elitzaphon ben Uziel. Uh, Kehas had four sons. One of them was Uziel, the youngest son. The oldest one was Amron, Amram, which is Moshe's father and Miriam's father and Aaron's father. And then Korach, who was also a grandson of Kahas, he felt that he should be the one who was nominated to be the leader. And his argument was, well, Amram, the oldest son of Kahas, well, two of his sons took very prime leadership roles amongst the people. Moshe was the king, so to speak, of the people. Aaron was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, the highest spiritual office in the nation. And then, well, I'm the oldest son of the next son of of Kehas, i.e. Yitzhar. And therefore, if there's another role, another leadership role, another position to dole out, well, it should come to me. Instead, Moshe chose the youngest son of Kehas, his son, i.e. Uziel's son, which is Elitzaphon, he's going to be the head of the family of Kehas. And he felt it was unfair. So what Rashi really does for us, really benefits us in our understanding of the strife that would ensue, is Rashi is able to clear away, and of course Rashi gets from the Talmud and the Midrash, but to clear away any misunderstanding that we may have as to the core roots of the strife. The core roots of the strife is envy. Korach was envious of the fact that his younger cousin got an office that he felt he deserved. And on top of that envy, he developed everything, all his arguments and all his polemics. And that really was the engine that drove his insurrection. Now, what did he do? really amazing what he did. He gathered with him a cadre of malcontents. He took with him 250 firstborns. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago in the Parsha, we read about the fact that the firstborns, they were initially designated to work in the tabernacle, but the Almighty decided thanks to their participation in several sins, that the Levites are going to take their place. So there were 22,000 and change firstborn and 22,000 and change Levites, and they swapped positions. And all the Levites became the ones who were in charge of the, uh, of the work in the temple, and the firstborns, well, they lost it. So these 250 men, they were also disappointed with some of the nominations of Moshe, And therefore, they also joined this rebellion. Again, they were motivated by envy. And the rebellion says, they tell Moshe, we don't believe that God sent you. You made this up on your own. You're a fraud. You're an imposter. You're a charlatan. And along with them, they had Dasam and Aviram. These were serial disruptors. These were people that were always looking to rebel against Moshe in whatever way possible, always ready to complain. And an additional character is Own, the son of Pelas. Different individual. We'll see more about him in a little bit. So what did they do? How did they position their insurrection? They came to Moshe, and they brought a garment 
that's entirely covered in blue wool or blue dye, trellis. And we know at the end of last week's prior show we read that if you have a four-corner garment, there's a mitzvah, an obligation to place upon it tzitzis, which is strings, and several of those strings are dyed in special wool, special color, special dye called tcheles. And Korach and his cohorts, they came to Moshe with a garment that's entirely blue. And they took the entire garment and they dunked it into the dye. But they didn't put tzitzis on it. And they asked Moshe, does this garment need tzitzis? And Moshe said to them, of course. Of course this garment needs tzitzis. And they started laughing at Moshe. How is it possible? If you have one tiny blue string added to the corners of the tzitzis, well, that's enough. If the whole garment itself is covered, is dyed in that same color, well, of course it should be fine. And then they asked Moshe another question. Suppose you had a home that is entirely full of Torah scrolls. Would such a home need a mezuzah? And Moshe said, it doesn't matter what the contents of the home are. Every home needs a mezuzah. And they started laughing at Moshe. And they tell Moshe, wait a minute. What's a mezuzah? If you open up a mezuzah, you'll notice it's a scroll. In it, it has sections from Deuteronomy, the first and the second paragraph of the Shema. So this is essentially a few sentences out of the Torah. Well, if you have piles and piles of Torah scrolls all over the house, it doesn't make sense that you shouldn't be good. If, if, if a tiny, half a, just a few paragraphs of a Torah scroll is enough to fulfill the duty to absolve yourself of your responsibility in a home, and you put it in the door of mezuzah, it doesn't make sense, argues Korach and his cohorts to Moshe, that if you have an entire home replete, full of Torah scrolls, that it should need to have a mezuzah as well. Now, the question is, what does this in any way have to do with their problem? They want, they want to question Moshe's legitimacy, Moshe's veracity, Moshe's claim to be a prophet, to be acting as per the instruction of God. And they come to Moshe and they say to him, all these bizarre hypothetical questions of uh, a, a home that's full of Torah scrolls, a, a house that's full of uh, a a garment that's entirely covered in in wool, what's really going on here? So my grandfather, of blessed memory, he offered a magnificent theory to explain how this related to their whole argument. Remember, they're coming to question Moshe as the leader of the people. They say, Moshe, you're a fraud. God did not speak to you. You acted on your own. You tried to coalesce all the power to your family. You knew I was a threat, so you gave the power elsewhere. That's what they're telling Moshe. What does this have to do with a garment that's entirely covered with blue and a house that's full of Torah scrolls? It doesn't seem to connect. So my grandfather explained a fantastic insight into what Korach is arguing over here. Korach is telling them 
his philosophy that he's trying to convey here is that we have ideas that we're trying to convey with mitzvos, and there's the ideal way of doing it, and then there's the suboptimal way of doing it. Ideally, for example, we should have a home. What should be in the home? Should you have furniture? No. Should you have uh, should you have uh, chairs and couches and uh, kitchen? No. It should be full of Torah scrolls. Ideally, right? That that would be ideal. It's just that's not very practical. So therefore, the Torah said, "Well, at least have one section of the Torah scroll placed upon your door." That's what that 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 that, that was his philosophy. That is the minimum requirement needed to absolve your responsibility, to fulfill your responsibility. Similarly, with tzitzis. Ideally, we know the Talmud tells us the power of this color of blue, this blue would remind people of God. Ideally, you should have everything, every garment should be all blue. That would be ideal. It's just the Torah recognizes, well, it's very expensive to find this animal that you create the dye with. And... It's not practical to have everything blue. So the Torah says, well, at least put a minimum of one string of blue. But ideally, you should have everything blue and you should have a house full of Torah. Says Korah, his argument is, well, if you have it in an idealized version, if you actually have a garment that's totally blue or a house that's totally full of Torah scrolls, then you don't need to have the less than ideal version, i.e. you don't need to have strings and you don't have them on your door. That's what Korach is arguing. And he's using this idea to extend towards the people, towards the nation, towards what an idealized nation is. Says Korach by extension, ideally, you should have a nation that's entirely righteous. Everyone's a prophet. Everyone's great. It's just that's not possible. That's not practical. So therefore, you have room and you have one one string or one mezuzah. You have one leader and he should be the leader of the people. But says Korach, our nation, we're the exception. We're the nation. The entire people heard God at Sinai. The entire nation is all righteous. Well, therefore, so to speak, proverbially, we're a nation that's entirely blue. We're like that garment that's entirely blue. We're like that home that's entirely full of Torah scrolls. Well, therefore, we don't need you. We don't need that string. I, we don't need you as the leader because you and the leader are akin to that one string or to the one mezuzah. And therefore, that's only when it's not an idealized version. But our nation, and like the verse says, the entire nation, we're all holy. The verse in verse uh, three here that gathered together against Moshe and against Aaron and said to them, is it too much for you? For the entire assembly, all of them are holy and Hashem is among them. Why do you exalt yourself over the congregation of Hashem? Why? You're no more better than us. We only need you when the entire nation is not holy. I.e., if you have a garment that there's no blue in it, you need to have a minimum of one string. But when the entire nation is holy, you're redundant. And what he's trying to do with his philosophy, this outlook, is to invalidate the need, the, as they say in French, the raison d'etre of Moshe. We don't need Moshe. Moshe is only when it's not ideal. 
when it is ideal, like our nation, we don't need Moshe, you're redundant, you're a fraud, we don't need you in our people. Korach is saying, Moshe's corrupt, and I'm going to expose him. And he managed to get a following. There wasn't a big following. 250 men, leaders of the people, plus Dasam Navir, two more, plus uh, Own Ben Pelas, plus Korach. We're talking about a total of 254 people. It's not a huge rebellion. But what's interesting about this, what's really surprising about this, is that this is not a rebellion that does not have ideology attached to it. There is a whole life perspective. There's a whole ideal of how things work and how things ought to work that is what Korach is coming. And think about it. Korach was a very charismatic and personable and persuasive and dynamic figure. And he goes to his lectures and he dazzles the crowd with the logic of his argument. Hey, we're all holy. We don't need Moshe. And he manages to get a following. Now, we're going to look at what happened at the, we're going to look at what happened at the continuation of the story. But what's really interesting here is that if you look at how our sages present the story, what they do first and foremost is take a microscope and examine at the depth of what the motivation of Korach was and tell us that really everything was predicated upon envy. This was all about envy and up on top of this envy, he built this whole intellectual theological edifice to say, well, look at this whole very fancy footwork to say that Moshe is redundant. And what do we see? We see from this the depths that people will descend logically and intellectually based upon envy. The envy here clouded their mind. And all the people that followed him, they were also inspired by this because it amounted to them seizing power as well. And that, I think, is maybe the first lesson here. The first lesson is, perhaps, of, of, of this analysis of the story, the first lesson is that many times, you know, if you ask Korach, just if you stopped him for a second and you froze him and said, okay, why are you fighting with Moshe? He would say, what do you mean? I'm a hero. I'm fighting for truth. Look at my argument. He wasn't even aware yeah. that what was really motivating was plain vanilla envy. Yeah. He was jealous, the fact that he was passed over. He felt like he was stiffed. Yeah. And a lot of times, I think yeah. in our arguments, we're so convinced of the ideological and philosophical and intellectual perspective, what we don't realize is that that's not, that was not developed out of pursuit of truth. That was a way to bolster my bad midos that kickstarted everything. Really, all I want is to have power. And I'll do anything that it takes to get it, even if it com- means coming up with cockamamie theories about how really the Torah works and how mitzvot work and how the Jewish community ought to look like. And I think this is a little bit terrifying. It's terrifying to think that what we think we think is, and we think it comes from intellectual pursuit of truth, is really just a way of justification of what we, at the depths of our character, really want. This is a very scary thought, by the way. The Muslim anthers were, were obsessed with deconstructing behavior. And what we see here, when Korach's behavior is deconstructed, what we see is a huge fanciful ideology, but the foundation of it all 
is just envy. And I think that's a very powerful lesson for us in and analyzing our conflicts that we have with other people to say, okay, what is really at the root of it? What's really motivating? What's the engine that really drives the argument? And if it's bad meadows, we know that it's probably something to walk away from. I want to look at Moshe's behavior because you see how Moshe interacts. Remember, someone is coming to call into question Moshe's legitimacy. That's a heavy swipe. Someone is saying, Moshe, you're a fraud. And look how Moshe responds. I want to pull a few examples. So what is the first thing Moshe does? Moshe tells him, okay, you want to say that you're really the boss. I'm a fraud. Everything I said, all the appointments that I made, that was all fake. And these 250 people, they all want to become a Kohen Gadol themselves. And Aaron's not real. You know what? We'll have a shootout. Everyone's going to take Kitores, take incense. And 250 people are going to offer it, and Aaron's going to offer it, and we'll see who God accepts. Now, if you remember, this is not the first time that incense is being offered. Back in Leviticus, we had at the inauguration, at the consecration of the tabernacle, two people, Nadav and Avil, two great people, the sons of Aaron, they brought Katoris as well. And they instantly died. And what Moshe is essentially doing here by offering the standoff, he, it's, it's, a, it's a cautionary offer. He's telling him, be careful what you wish for, because you might indeed get it. And he says, Katoris, we're going to have a Katoris uh, standoff. You, your 250 people against Aaron. And what Moshe is essentially doing here, he's offering them a way out to save face. They should have said, I don't want to go down that road. I remember it happened last time someone offered Katoras and he wasn't in the right. They died. I don't want to die. And what Moshe is essentially doing, he's assuming that they're going to get steered off. What Moshe wants to do is end this amicably, end this peaceably, and say, let's have Katoras battle. They'll say, no way. And then the insurrection will die. Unfortunately, it doesn't. So what happens next? Moshe speaks to Korach again and says, here now, uh, offspring of Levi, and in Hebrew, uh, Shimunah, he says, please listen to me. Moshe speaks softly. Mm-hmm. Normally, when you have a heated debate, you start calling names and you start uh, questioning someone's, uh, you, start, you, you, know, you start belittling someone. And Moshe does the exact opposite. He starts to accord them even more honor than they deserve. He starts speaking to them softly. And what does he do? He reminds them. He starts to appease them. He says, well, you're Levites. Levites, you are special. The Almighty separated you, designated you for distinction. And therefore, don't think that you have nothing. No, you are worth something. Instead of trying to denigrate them, Moshe tries to show them that, no, you're uplifted. You're powerful. You, you have a place of prominence amongst the people. And continuously, so verse, if you want to look at it inside, in verse 12 of chapter 16, he goes over to Dasanim and Aviram. These are the two masterminds, uh, along with Korach, of this rebellion. And he says to them, let's talk it over. Let's find a way to reconcile this. And they say to him, we're not coming to talk to you. You took us out of Egypt. We'd rather be there. 
they're incredibly chutzpahdik to Moshe. So they, Moshe summons them. They don't come out. God threatens to kill them. Moshe tries to defend them. And then as a last-ditch effort in verse 25, Moshe himself goes to Dustin and Aviram and tries to talk to them, and they don't bite. And we know the end of the story was that uh, the 250 people died. A fire came and consumed them. Korach and his family... And all the people that conspired with him, they were swallowed up by this miraculous sinkhole. But when we look at Moshe's behavior, Moshe did not partake in this argument. Moshe did not cause strife. It was a one-sided argument. And if you actually look at the Mishnah, there's a, there's a Mishnah in the chapters of the fathers that talks about machlokas, talks about division and strife and disagreement, and it puts Machlokas into two categories. There's the good kind, there's the bad kind. The good kind is like Hillel and Shammai and the houses of Hillel and Shammai. We'll get to that in a little bit. What's the bad kind? What's the bad kind of Machlokas? This is in chapter 5 of the chapters of the fathers towards the end, 17, 18, depends on which uh, which version because the Mishnah numbers are not fixed. Different editions have different numbers. What is the kind of Machlokas that is the bad kind of Machlokas, it says Korach and Adasso. Korach and his cadre and his group and his minions. Well, if there's an argument, there's two sides. There's Korach and Moshe, Korach and God, Korach and Aaron. But here it says Korach and his people. What this means is that this was really a one-sided argument. Moshe was not fighting back. And indeed, we see that What's really proper, what Moshe did, was to try to deflect the argument. Now, there's a really scary uh, Rashi, quotes from the Talmud. Um, If you look at, and I'm just saying these verses in case you want to look at it a little later on, in verse uh, 27... For verse 26, Moshe tells everyone, get as far away as you can from these people. Because these people are going to die an unnatural death. And the verse, the following verse, uh, talks about that everyone scattered. And we see interestingly here that the people indeed were with Moshe in this instance. But they scattered from the tent of Dasam and Aviram. And Dasam and Aviram are standing stoically, defiantly at the entrance of their tent with their wives with their children, and with their infants. Now, why does it mention their wives, their children, and their infants? Why is that pertinent? They're not participants in the argument. So Rashi tells us, of course, from the Talmud, Midrash mentions this, something very scary. And I'll read it to you. Bo come and see. Kama How harsh is fighting, is infighting, is discord, machlokas. Shaharei Bezin Shalmata, because the human, the, the, the human court, ain't onshim at saras, only punish adults from the age of 13 for a boy and 12 from a girl. Ubezin Shalmala and the heavenly court, ad esrim, they only judge from the age of 20. Vekan, but here, avdu af yonke shadaim, even babies, infants, were swept away in the punishment 
for machlokas, for strife. This is scary. What this is saying is that all the rules of jurisprudence go out the door with regards to this particular misdeed. If someone commits a crime, here we can only judge them at the age of 13 for a boy, 12 for a girl. In heaven, they only judge from the age of 20. What is this one exception that crimes, uh, punishment for crimes are meted out even to babies? Machlokas, fighting. And the question is, why? Why is it that even babies who are totally innocent, why are they swept away, particularly for this sin and not for any other? I saw from the Maharal in the Gur Aryeh, he says something really scary and fascinating to explain this point. And I think it's conversely, you flip it on its head, you learn a good lesson. You know, sometimes when you see, see the bad perspective, the good perspective is uh, visible kind of in contrast. What he says like this, he says that there is something called din. Din in Hebrew means judgment. But din also refers to a philosophy. And the philosophy is exactly what someone deserves they get. No more, no less. Everything is in precise precision. Everything is with precision. Someone who is willing to forfeit on what is exactly the letter of the law, what exactly they deserve, when they're in the right, someone like that will never have fights. If you're right, well, if you're wrong, well, you can admit you're wrong. And if you're right, how do you stop that kind of fight? By giving in. By forfeiting when you're in the right. You have a fight, right? You have a fight with someone. And you're right and they're wrong. And you have evidence. And that makes you even more emboldened in your position. What are we told? We're told here, let's say you're right. So what? Make believe you're wrong, apologize, and what do you lose? You don't lose anything, and you ensure that the fight doesn't continue. Says the Maharal, someone who has that quality of giving up when they're, when they're right, when you're correct, but to forfeit, will never have fights. The only way for someone to have a fight, to have a machlokas, to have something which is ongoing strife, that's only when they are not willing to compromise on din, on judgment, on the precise letter of the law. If I'm right, I'm not giving up a smidgen. Someone like that, the way we treat others, God treats us. Says the Maharal, why does God not punish from the age, un, un, until the age of 20? And why does God tell us not to punish from the age of uh, up, to, uh, up to the age of 13. That's because what God has, and we saw this last week, last week in the parsha. God is Erech HaPayim. God gives us a grace period. God is not immediate. He's not swift to judgment. He allows us to repent. He allows, he gives us time. And therefore, if someone's a sinner, God's not going to do anything to them because maybe let, let's be easy on the din. We're going to go easy on the judgment. 
But someone who says, I want only judgments, I want only that I'm not willing to compromise a little bit, you want that? You get that. And when that happens, when that fury of judgment of God is unleashed on the world, even babies aren't spared. It's a very harsh way to be treated by God, and we don't want to be treated like that. And therefore, I think the, the flip side, the positive uh, side of this is that we have to learn and train ourselves, and this is not easy at all, because you know it's hard enough to admit we're wrong when we're wrong. How much harder is it to admit we're wrong when we're actually right? But here we're told is that what we do, it actually evokes a way of behavior from God. We want God to allow us. We make mistakes. Who doesn't make mistakes? Every human makes mistakes. And we make mistakes against God. There's nothing worse than that. It's rebellion. It's mutiny against God. And we're wrong. And God's right. But God will allow us to be wrong and forget about it if we allow someone else to be wrong and we forget about that. I remember I read a, an epithet. There was an epithet on a, on a gravestone that said, uh, here lies the body of William J., who died maintaining his right of way. He was right, dead right, as he sped along, but he's just as dead now as if he were wrong. <laughs> so yes, it, and this, this is not an easy thing. When you're right, you feel like it's justice to stand up for truth. If you seek peace, even when you're right, you're willing to forego it. I want to share with you an amazing teaching of the Talmud. It's brought down in several places. The Talmud says, Ha'ne'elavim ve'enam olvim Shomen charpasim enam ashivim Someone who gets ashamed, someone gets embarrassed and doesn't embarrass back. Shomim Kharpasam hears them being denigrated. Vainim Shivan doesn't respond. Here's other people being in front of him and keeps quiet. Aleim Akrasav Omer, regarding these people, the verse says, Ve'ohavav Kitseis Hashemesh Bivurasso. And those that love God are like the mighty sun, which is a way of saying. These are people who merit Olamaba. It's no big deal. Well, maybe it is a big deal. It is a big deal to admit that you're wrong when you're actually wrong. There's a Mida characteristic called Modal Emes to admit the truth when you're wrong. Like Judah, for example, exemplified that. In fact, his name is that, Yehuda, which means to be moded to admit. But it's even more special. It's from a different world, from Olamaba, where someone, is, someone agrees to admit they're wrong when they're right to hear your shame, to someone embarrass you, not fight back, that is a mita from a different world. And if someone has that characteristic, they are assured that God will treat them in kind. God will treat them quite literally with kindness. They won't have the attribute of din, and they won't indeed participate in any conflicts of this sort, any machlokas. Now, there's a fascinating Talmud regarding own Ben Pelis. Because if you read the beginning of the story and you read the end of the story, you find that there's one character at the beginning of the story who actually disappears from the conclusion of the story. The very first verse in the parsha talks about a fellow by the name of Own. First name is Own, Ben Pelis, the son of Pelis. And he's part of this insurrection against Moshe. He's part of the rebellion. 
And at the end of the parsha, when we see how it all plays out, he's nowhere to be found. What happened to him? So the Talmud says that his wife saved him. And his wife told him, well, let's make a calculation. Here you have Korach and you have Moshe. Moshe is the king and you're a plebe. You're no special. And you're fighting for Korach. You want Korach to be the king. Well, what's going to be when Korach's the king? You'll also be a plebe. You also won't be any special. What's the difference if this guy's the king or that guy's the king? Either way, you have no, you have nothing to bet, nothing to gain. So just stay out of it. So he, he tells his wife, but wait a minute, I promised them I'll join. So she says, I have a solution. She gives him to drink. He drinks some wine, goes to sleep. She takes off her hair covering and she sits at the entrance of the tent. So all the people come to Owen's tent. Come on, Owen, we need you here. It's time for the big expo against Moshe. We need you. And they walk into his tent. They peek in. <gasps> they see his wife. They're not dressed uh, modestly. They run out. And, of course, eventually they forget about, about Owen. And by the time he wakes up from his sleep, everyone's already dead. And she saved him. That's the story. And this story is always used to show that uh, sometimes it's a good idea to listen to your wife. Uh, and she can save you. See, she sometimes has a much clearer perspective on what you ought to be doing than you do. And she's a great heroine. But I want to ask an, an, a question. I think this, this also, again, is going to glean for us an amazing insight about this whole idea of, of division. She tells him, what do you have to gain? What's in it for you? And he's like, eh, gee, I don't know. And he agrees to, to withhold, to recant, to rescind his participation in the rebellion. But the obvious question is, what was he thinking to begin with? Initially, what was his motivation to participate in the first place? He had nothing to gain then either. If there was something to gain, then his wife's argument is moot. So obviously there was nothing to gain. So I want to I want to suggest I want to suggest an idea of why Owen was motivated to join the rebellion to begin with, and I think that um, I think that there's a there's a good lesson for us uh, in this whole in this whole in this whole question. I want to suggest that there's something really appealing about ruffling some feathers, you know, about upending the status quo, about joining the resistance or the revolt or the rebellion. Whether or not you think about it, whether or not it's logical, it's kind of like, and we'll talk about politics in a little bit, it's kind of like politics, the side that says no and the side that the party that's in the opposition, they seem appealing after a while because people are disappointed with the present, not because the opposition's policies are any better, but because they just don't like the way things are, and they always want to say, let's just do the opposite. So I want to suggest that even though Owen did not have a horse in the race, he had no skin in the game, he had nothing to benefit from joining, there's a certain kind of mentality that people have, that it gets excited. You kind of get motivated to just join whether or not you have anything to gain from it. 
the fact that there is a rebellion and there's a revolt and you don't even know what it's about? Your Yetzirah says, join. And it presents this urge to join. Even though it's not about any achieving any goal or any logical end to it. It's part of what the Yetzirah says. If there's a fight, you should join. Whether or not it makes sense, it's right, it's moral, it's decent, or it's good. Own, he wasn't thinking, what do I have to gain initially? He's like, oh, there's a fight against Moshe, let me join. And his wife, she was kind of removed, and she says, wait a minute, let's do the math. What's there to gain? Nothing? Get in the back, get something to drink, go to sleep. With regards to politics, I think there has been kind of an uptick in political tribalism. You know, what happened a couple of days ago, really tragic that there is this um, individual with political motivations coming to try to kill politicians in a baseball game. And you think about how heinous that is and how sad that the political discourse and the political rhetoric uh, could result in something so depraved and so tragic. Now, I'm not going to make any bombastic statements about the political climate, political nature, uh, political landscape, but I, I do think that there, there is a risk of following this own character and his, and, and his motivation and just saying, I'm taking a stake in this fight, I'm joining, I'm part of this group, and everything that group does, whether or not it's right or it's just, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm not trying to pursue truth and pursue justice and pursue what's best for everyone or what's best for me even. Even though I may be worse off, at least I get them. You know, Even though the, the policies that my side, quote unquote, is proposing is worse off for me, but so what, I get to screw the other side. And I think that there is a risk of that actually happening. And I think it's it's sad that um, the volatile the volatile environment of our politics um, has reached that point. Um, everything's all partisan now. It's all about partisanship. And I think it's unfortunate because we lose out on some good ideas and some good policies. And I think this applies on both sides of the aisle. So I think it's 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 not a political statement. I think everyone can agree upon that. And I think there is a strand of tribalism, fighting for the sake of fighting that uh, exists, existed with own it could exist with us, and we should be aware of that. Now, what's the proper way to argue? So the Mishnah tells us that there is machlokas l'shem shemaim for the sake of heaven, and that was the arguments of Beishamai and Basil, the house of Sham and the house of Hillel, and that will endure. However, the machlokas, the argument that's not for the sake of heaven, that will not endure. And what's that? That is the machlokas of Korach and Adasso. I want to look a little bit about how Beis Shammai, the house of Shammai, the school of Shammai, the school of Hillel, how they argue to learn the proper way to do it. Because there is a proper way to do it. What this is not trying to suggest, this talk and this idea is not trying to suggest that we should become docile and we should become uh, people who don't have nuance and who don't have opinions and are not opinionated. No. If you're developed and the objective of, of Torah is to make us developed, then you're going to have you're going to have opinions and you're going to have beliefs and you're going to have arguments and you should defend them unless you think they're not true and then you're just defending them not 
in pursuit of truth. But Beishamis Hillel, they are the exemplars of what this looks like. I want to share with you some examples of what we're told about Beishamai and Beishila and their arguments. So first of all, the Talmud in the book of Erevin on page 13b tells us that for three years, the schools of Shammai and Hillel had an ongoing debate. What could you possibly argue for three years? One side said the law is like us. And one side said the law is like us. That was the argument for three years. Think about this. You have, you know, maybe hundreds and hundreds of the greatest rabbis and the greatest minds in the world, and they're spending three years, and they're arguing about nuanced ideas in halacha, who's right and who's wrong. Clearly, these are not people that are willing to just sit down and forfeit a good fight. And when they're, th- when they're convinced they're right, they don't give up. Why should they? What was the resolution? After three years, they heard a prophetic voice announce, Elu ve'elu divrei elokim chayim. These, Beishamai, these, Beishilal, are both the words of the living God. They're both Torah. However, the halacha, but the halacha to Beishilal, halacha follows Beishilal. So what this shows us, first of all, that the proper argument is not to say to just lay down and give up. It's to fight it out. And if you believe you're right, you are, you should continue fighting. That's number one. Number two, the Talmud tells us that there were certain arguments that Beishama and Beishil had that would actually invalidate the progeny of one side or the other side as mamzerim. So you would think that these divisions actually affected relationships. Talmud says, even though, this is Talmud Yavamos, page 14, even though there are these, say, permitted, these, say, prohibited, still they intermarried with each other. It didn't affect their relationship. They loved each other, and they're willing to cement that love and those relationships for eternity by intermarried with each other. There was no tribalism. It was pursuit of truth and truth alone. Moreover, we know that there's many laws about kosher and different myriad details of those laws. So what happens? You have two neighbors. One of them is a student of Beis and one's a student of Beis Hillel, and one of them needs to borrow a pot. Are you going to lend a pot to that guy? What if he puts in something that you think, he thinks is kosher, but you think is not kosher? So the Talmud, they would freely lend each other pots and pans, but they would say just they would warn they would warn them if they used the pot in a way that was in any way problematic for the other side, they would warn them. And of course they would expect the other side to not use the pot in a way that would invalidate and render it unkosher for the owner. But what this tries to demonstrate that it was not personal at all. It was like the Mishnah says, L'shem Shemaim, for the sake of heaven. What is truth? What is, what is halacha? What does God want? And if we have that, we could argue for years. And each side trying to present an argument that is a winning argument. Because they're both looking for truth, we could talk. 
If two people are not willing to compromise on their position, then there really is no argument. Because if nothing I can say will make you change your mind, nothing, what's the point of trying to change your mind? For three years they were arguing because each side was looking for truth. And therefore each side was open to having their minds being changed. Well, then you could argue about it for three years. The Talmud also says that for two and a half years, the schools of Shammai and the schools of Hillel had another argument. Well, what's this argument? What could he argue for two and a half years? Is it better for a human to be created or not? We know that life over here, there's a balance, right? You to become greater, you to become worse. Is it better for us to be here and have the opportunity to become great, but also the risk of becoming worse? Or maybe it's better for us to, not be, to have not been created to begin with. Can you think about what kind of arguments were presented in that debate? And just as an aside, what was the conclusion of that debate? Ultimately, they concluded that it's better for someone to not be created. It's better for us. We're better off if we were never created And therefore, we don't have the risk of devolving, of toxification of our soul, of making ourselves impure, of sinning. We'll forfeit the opportunity for mitzvahs as long as it's, um, as long as we are spared from the dangers of sins. However, Achshav Shenivra, now that you are created, this is what you should do. You You should examine your actions. You should probe your behavior. Now, this particular argument is a fascinating discussion of, of kind of big theological and eschatological questions. Like I said, are we better off or are we worse off? Could you imagine having a thousand of the smartest people in the world arguing this question for two and a half years? It's it's. You know, it's just a mind-blowing kind of thing to even consider. Pretty striking Gemara. So what are the lessons for us? Um, the lessons perhaps for us, I'll make a list of kind of how to argue uh, and how to avoid strife. So first of all, I think it's important for us when we have an argument to make it like Beisham Beisillel, it's about pursuit of truth. With Korach and his, and his comrades, it was about trying to get fulfillment for their envy. That really was the motivating factor. And if that's a motivating factor, it's not going to lead you towards truth because you're not even trying to get truth. Truth is hard enough to get as is. If you're trying to get something other than truth, it's, it's, it's impossible for you to get that. So how do you try to make your arguments that it's trying to achieve truth? Well, you have to consider the other side. You have to entertain the smallest of possibilities that you may be wrong. And if you're not willing to do that, walk away because that's just going to bring strife. Of course, when you have an argument with someone, you have to respect the other side. You have to even honor them. Talmud says that Beishamai and Beishillah, Beishillah, whenever they would mention a machlokas, they would first say the opinion of the other side and only then would they introduce their opinion. They gave so much prominence to the other side and so much honor to them. Uh, moreover, arguments that are we have to look, we have to consider the fact that what we are trying to do in our side, in our position, may indeed be motivated by bad character, by bad midos, by malice, by envy. Uh, further, it's imperative of, upon us 
to, con- to make a distinction between our opponent and our opponent's position. You may argue with Beisham and Beisillel, but it doesn't mean that you can't be good neighbors and good friends and intermarry and everything like that. It's okay to have an argument. But the argument, because it's an argument that you're really both, in essence, agreeing, you both want truth, well, you're not really arguing about the result. You're arguing about the way to get the result, and therefore you really are united in objective. If you're united in objective, of course, you could be good friends and good and, – and you're, you both want the same thing. It's just you're arguing how to get the same thing. Once you figure out how to get it, what's best for everyone, you'll follow that. That attitude, I think, is, is, a, is critical. But, of course, it does not mean to compromise on your position. If you're right and you convince you're right, not because of bad midos, because that's what seems more, more true to you, fight it out and clarify if you're wrong. It's okay to walk away from that. That's indeed – that's a great characteristic to do that. And lastly, what if you indeed are right? You may be right. You may be a thousand percent right. And still what might be appropriate for you to do to preserve peace and preserve unity, especially in, in family matters or marriages, you're right. She's wrong. You're right. He's wrong. So what? What's more important than that? Isn't your relationship, isn't peace, isn't that even more important than that? If someone can admit that they're wrong and someone could swallow their pride and swallow their shame, they're acting from a different world and therefore they merit to access that other world. And perhaps one more lesson, and that is we have to try to learn the skill of deconstructing our behavior. We may think we know why we do what we do and we may be right for the most part. But our sages, when they looked at Korah's behavior, they modularized the motivating factors. And very quickly, once you know what's actually motivating something, some behavior, it's very easy to see if it's good behavior, if it's bad behavior, and indeed, if it is bad, how to fix it. That's the objective, and hopefully we can learn the lessons from Korach to make sure we have more peaceful lives, more harmonious relationships, and we avoid the terrible fate that befell Korach and his co-conspirators, and we achieve uh, greatness together in unity.